This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Impact's Chief Partnership Officer, Michael Head's career path hasn't always been linear. In fact, his career trajectory is much more of a zigzag than a straight line. His journey has included pit stops in the healthcare industry, ambitions of running a gym, and finally a foray into app development. Luckily for all of us, the road eventually led him into partnerships, which are obviously critical in the world of marketing. On today's episode of Marketing Trends, Michael discusses the shifts he's seeing from modern partnerships to influencer-based ones how the partnership ecosystem continues to benefit everyone, and why the journey from start to finish is so important. Enjoy this discussion. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. Today, we are joined by special guest. Michael, what's going on? Hey, and good to connect. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Um, I'm excited to chat today. This is the their second interview, almost a year later, uh, talking to someone from Impact uh, the first time. We had a great uh, interview with, uh, with your CEO. And this time we're going to dive deep into partnerships. Um, it's a super relevant you know, time right now with uh with all the craziness in the world and and partnerships are potentially more important than ever before so um let's get into it but first how did you get started in marketing in the first place so and how i ended up at impact is is really interesting overall the real high level is just very entrepreneurial i've worked in healthcare it i started a fitness company Um, i thought i wanted to run a gym and i started a location-based deal app for santa barbara and once I'd started that app, I started to network more in the community here of entrepreneurs. And I was able to meet Per Pedersen, who he started Commission Junction uh, many years ago. And then at that point in time, when I met him, um, he uh, had just launched Impact. At that point, it was Impact Radius with a number of other co-founders. Um, and I met, met with the entire team there, really loved them and, and joined as the 10th employee. So that was really, aside from my entrepreneurial endeavors, where of course you have to be focused on sales and marketing, it was the first organization that I worked with that was really focused you know, on partnership and marketing overall. So what is partnerships? You know, we we use this term to talk about a bunch of different things and it means something different for B2B companies versus B2C companies. How do you all look at uh, what is partnerships? Yeah, partnerships are broad and broad for a reason because they take shape in many different forms and sizes and entities based off of you know your business and the types of partners that you work with. Um, and the way we think about partnerships, a term that we use is a referral partner. Um, and a referral partner, there's a couple of different categories that I think people can relate to that easily fall into that. So influencers, they're a referral partner where they're out there and they're promoting, you know, products and brands that they like and getting those to go, those consumers to go and purchase from those respective brands or merchants that they like. 
traditional affiliates, you know, they're referring traffic to all different types of merchants and advertisers. Uh, but then there's some more types of partnerships that are a little bit uh, different and outside the box. You know, you can think of deep technology integrations where you have, you know, two merchants actually working together, whether it's a credit card organization and a travel company where there's a lot of natural synergy between both of those organizations and the consumers that they work with. And they both benefit by being able to send traffic to one another. A category of partnerships that is kind of, it was really big years ago and is starting to move away is the reseller, right? That's another part of the B2B partnership that people often think of where you're actually going out and you're selling products for say a Microsoft or another big business organization. And what we're generally seeing and many others in the industry is the big shift is going away from these resellers to more of these different types of referral partners. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's, and it depending on, um, on the type of organization, how those referral partners and channel, I mean, obviously, you know, our, our amazing sponsor Salesforce, you know, they have an app exchange or they have all sorts of partners, um, in their ecosystem, you know, other companies might not have such, you know, such a robust, uh, you know, network. Uh, I mean, what, what do those things look like? Are these, are these mostly piecemealed? How are organizations managing their, their partners? Yeah, a lot of what organizations are doing today is very piecemeal. Um, You know, there will be one off. Oh, this sounds like a great type of partnership. Let's figure out how we can work with them. And then the way to track and manage and also enable the partners and the enablement piece is very important. Um, It's kind of all over the place. And so it prevents a lot of organizations from being able to scale and manage many different partners all at the same time. So most organizations end up just dipping their toes a little bit into a couple different types of partners, Um, whereas the most mature ones we work with have figured out a way to really automate and scale and work with, you know, smaller to large size organizations that are partners and everything in between. So who in companies owns this thing? Like, I would imagine that, uh, you know, you have a lot of the, you know, maybe it's an associate and a certain marketing team. Uh, maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a manager you have, you know, maybe they're managing vendors, they're managing partners, they're managing a bunch of different things. Like, I'm curious, like, who is this? Because I I think, and you know, what, what we're going to get to in a little bit is this, you know, the rise of the chief partnership officer, like what this, what this role could be and why it's going to be important, but who's doing it now? Yeah, it's all across the board. You know, you think about different types of partnerships. Sometimes we see it sitting within a marketing organization, you know, and of course, uh, when we call out things like um, affiliates or influencers, that ends up being pretty natural for sitting within uh, the marketing organization. But in other areas, we actually, we can see it sitting within a product 
organization because they're focused on really deep native software integrations that they can do um, with other entities that are complementary to them. We see sometimes there's a business development group that's pretty senior within the organization, oftentimes reporting not into the CMO, actually reporting into the CEO. And they're doing, of course, very large and strategic partnerships. So in general, and one of the things that causes organizations to not be able to scale as efficiently is due to the fact that there's similar partnership activity but there's inconsistency in how they manage them, the technology that they use, and then they're sitting in different teams and departments with different P&Ls as well as different KPIs. Yeah, that's, that's a great point that the different KPI, the, the needle might be moving for, for one person and, and not another. Um, specifically, you know, if you have like a channel sales function, like, and that compared to your like affiliate, for example, could be, you know, well, if you have like a digital affiliate program versus a, a actual, you know, something like the app exchange or something like, uh, you know, a true built out channel program, those, those two are probably one sits on a digital marketer's desk and one sits, you know, reporting to the CRO potentially, right? Correct. Yeah. I was at a B2B conference last year where I gave a presentation on this topic specifically. And afterwards at lunch, many of the people were like, wow, this really hit home. You know, I'm on the BD team and I know we have an affiliate team. I don't even know who those people are or what they're doing, you know, or many different scenarios like the one that you just called out where it's they're aware that they're within the organization and there's some sort of activity, but there's really no alignment. Yeah, the, no, there really isn't. And if you look at, especially, you know, we we focus a lot on the podcast space and how people are leveraging, you know, original audio and things like that. I mean, you look at just like the rise of like promo codes within like the podcast space, for example, and how folks leverage those type of channels. Well, it's one thing if it's just like a paid spend, but if it's something more than that, if it's something more developed than that, um, and it's, you know, a core part of your strategy, for example, then, you know, like you take a, an example, like a, I don't know, a zip recruiter or something like that, who's managing like massive amounts of, uh, of affiliate deals at any given time, then how does that compare to, the other marketing functions that you're doing? How does that compare to, uh, you know, if you're just kind of, and I don't want to say spray and pray because that's, because it's much more thoughtful than that. But if you are doing kind of like a, a, a mass appeal affiliate model where there's a million codes out there for a million different people, um, then that compared to your more, uh, yeah, biz dev type functions it's going to just feel really different. And potentially you might have some uh, cannibalization there. Like, right. You might be saying like, wait a second, you know, that promo code gets you 10% off for the first year. And, you know, we're sitting here and uh, we do all this work to do the same exact thing. And they just use a promo code. Like then why, why are we setting up this whole program? Like, what are you doing to me? All fair points, you know, and we, we look at affiliate and there is coupon and discounting, but there's, there's also affiliates that are much more, you know, content focused and less discount focused. But the challenge challenges that you bring up are definitely 
very real. And one of, you know, the issues where if you're managing partnerships and silos and different systems and in an ad hoc manner, there's absolutely no way to answer the question that you just posed as to why, why am I doing this? I just paid a discount and I did other work in another channel. So the real key is you need to have a data set that can answer those types of questions. Because to your point, you're going to have some, you know, medium to smaller size partners that you just can't spend the time on to customize terms, to really build a strong relationship and meet with them weekly. And you need a little bit more of vanilla terms to work with those types of partners. But at the same time, for your strategic ones where you want to be able to invest time, um, you need flexibility so that you can have more bespoke or custom terms to that specific partner entity that you want to work with. But the key is, you can't operate them in a silo and in different systems because you need to understand how everything works together. It's the common attribution problem that any organization brings up, whether you're B2B or B2C. It's really understanding what are your activities to go to market and what are the results that came from it and how did those activities um, drive the outcomes that we're looking for. So what amount of revenue do you see partnerships making? Like how much of the bottom line, like are you seeing them dry? I know this is totally different depending on the type of organization, but um, like what does a coherent partnership strategy look like and how can it affect your revenue? Sure. So we commissioned a study with Forrester last year to answer that exact question because we could of course see programs and partnership programs on our platform, but we really wanted to understand overall across the globe, across different business units um, and business verticals, really what is the value that you can get for the partnership program? And the study came back with some pretty powerful results. On average, mature partnership organizations were driving almost 30% of their overall company revenue through their partnership programs. And it was a pretty meaningful difference between a mature organization and an immature organization with respect to the amount of revenue that they were driving to the tune of on average, a mature organization drove $162 million in more revenue than their competitors when their partnership program is firing on all cylinders. What does a mature organization mean, um, I guess, first? And then like, what what would make that uh, that partnership strategy, that program, fire on all cylinders? Sure. So it's a common concept. It's the people, the process, and the technology that we've used to really uh, assess what a mature partnership organization looks like. So we touched on the organizations a little bit, but... A mature organization actually doesn't have many of the challenges we mentioned earlier with multiple people across multiple departments doing similar activities, but in silos. Mature partnership organizations are actually forming these people within a partnership organization. So they have one leader, full accountability, understands the workflows, understands the processes. And then within those people, you do have to look for a diverse skill set. It's not sales and it's not marketing. It kind of sits in the middle, especially when you're thinking about the 
skill set that you need from any given individual. So if you think about it, some of the marketing skill sets that you need today, there's a lot of analytics and insights in the consumer journey and optimization to get more and improve your return on ad spend, a, a very common thing for a marketing organization to focus on. But then at the same time, you're out there, you're actually, there's scenarios where you're prospecting and you're engaging new partners, um, you're negotiating contracts. And so those things are very much a skills, sales type skill set. So the mature organizations not only have formed around the partnership opportunity, but at the same time, they've hired people that have this blended skill set to really drive growth for their partnership organization. Then with their process, because they have a single team, they can really think about forming the activities and the roles and the responsibility around what we call the life cycle of partnerships or the partnership life cycle, which is first you have to discover and then you have to recruit partners. And as you think about the opportunities to discover and recruit partners, there's millions and millions of potential partners that any given organization could work with. And so you need to be really diligent with your process of what are the types of partners, what's the brand alignment that you're looking for, the geo, the demographics, all of those things. And you need to be able to make sure once you identify the types of partners, you're constantly recruiting and bringing them in um, to your program so that you have a, a consistent pipeline of new partners constantly joining and working with you. In addition to that discovery, you're forming processes around how you want to contract and pay those partners. You want to make sure that you have the right processes around how you optimize and grow each of them. And then the final piece, you got to protect yourself, right? So you're really looking at, you know, in the digital world, we've all heard it and know the stats, fraud is out there. And, you know, for partnerships, when not managed right, there is the chance that you there's some fraud there. And so you want to make sure that you have the right processes in place to constantly protect all of your investments and just make sure that you're getting the most out of each of those partnerships. And that cycle, the discover, recruit, the contract and pay, the optimize and the protect, that's a constant thing that you need to build your processes around. And then the, the final piece is the technology. The technology for a mature organization, they're not using the spreadsheets, they're not using their web analytics. Um, they actually have found technology that allows them to automate that entire partner life cycle so they can focus on the relationships and the strategy and the growing and they eliminate all of the manual workflows. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so are you... What are you seeing then from kind of the mature organizations in terms of like, how do they put headcount at the problem? How do they organize? You know, we, we mentioned sometimes that you, you know, have a chief partnership officer that rolls up to the CEO, but I'd imagine that most people that that spins out of either marketing or sales, like how do you kind of bridge that gap? Yeah, you end up forming either around the processes that I mentioned. So you can have people that are assigned just to the discovery and the recruiting, others that are assigned to the you know contract and paying and optimization. Um, or we see organizations form more around the types of partnerships. So they'll have some people that 
you need to be tasked with influencers. We have others, our premium content publishers that now they they have a drive towards content commerce and we want to work directly with them. So they'll have people formed around that as well. Um, you know, charity partnerships is another good example where you can see, you know, maybe having some headcount that is formed around that functional type of uh, partnership category as well. What are some of the pitfalls or like common mistakes that you see that that really derail these type of uh, initiatives? A couple of things that we consistently see. Um, one is a set it and forget it type mentality. Um, so, so especially in the marketing side of things, um, you know, you, you can be used to, I'm going to just stand something up and then we're going to let the campaign run and we'll see what happens. And if you take that mentality to partnerships, uh, you can end up falling flat there. You know, these are different than some other marketing channels where there are relationships that you need to engage. The more you engage them, the more you can grow those relationships. A couple other pitfalls that we, we end up seeing um, from potential, um, organizations when they're starting with partnerships. So another one would be just the not not having the right insights and analytics to be able to understand the true value of each of the partnerships. You know, definitely see organizations fall into the last click mentality still where they're analyzing and viewing partnerships just based off of that, which you know, to have a successful partnership program, you do want to think about the entire consumer journey and see who is initiating, assisting, as well as closing. And if you don't have that type of view, you're really going to miss out on a lot of opportunities that are adding value um, overall for your organization. One of the other pitfalls that we see is not having enough diversity. So you've started to engage in a certain way. Um, and you have one type of partnership program up and running, and then you just settle with that when the reality is there's a lot of opportunities that are out there. And if you don't continue to diversify, you put yourself at a concentration risk where you only have a small handful of partners that you need to depend on. And the real mature programs end up having a lot of diversity and breadth in there. So they don't have a heavy reliance on any single partner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I would imagine that much like any kind of like power principle thing is like, you know, the the 20% of your of your problem partners take up 80% of your time. I don't know if you have any data on that, but it's always kind of bears true. Yeah, and vice versa where you can if you don't have diversity, you can have, you know, 90% of your volume coming from 10% of your partners, which also isn't a good place to be. What are some fun examples that you've seen of like creative partnerships out in the wild? One that I love and part of it's because I've had pets my entire life and they've always been dogs is uh, BarkBox. Um, They started an initiative with uh, rescue shelters. And so they would actually give some of their products to those rescue shelters and they, you know, of course, the dogs could play with them when they were there. And then when someone would adopt a pet, they would actually be presented with a pretty compelling consumer offer to take, uh, take advantage of BarkBox services. And if the consumer did that, BarkBox would then give a donation to the rescue shelter. And so it was really a great way where 
BarkBox is giving back to the communities with which they serve. The consumer gets presented a great offer and a service right at the best time for them to receive that offer. And of course, you know, good story about dogs getting rescued. A couple other ones that, you know, I, I think are personally really interesting is something that we've seen with Spotify and Ticketmaster. So Spotify is a service that you know, I've loved and used. Um, and they have a native integration with Ticketmaster, which um, is pretty powerful where you can listening to any artist, of course, not nowadays with, um, you know, the new environment and COVID, but you can look at any artist and you could see when their shows uh, were coming up and which cities, and then you could easily just click on it within the Spotify app and you could be taken over to Ticketmaster to be able uh, to buy tickets for that live event. A couple of the other things that uh, we, we've always found really interesting with respect to you know, new types of potential partnerships are always when we see, you know, traditional merchants or brands getting together to promote one another. Um, so it can be things as simple as, you know, a travel organization partners with a retailer that sells, you know, apparel that is in line with what was just purchased. So I just booked, you know, my island trip and now I need my swim gear. And right at the time of purchasing it, you're able to surface something that's going to add value again in that consumer journey because now as a consumer, I've purchased my trip, I'm excited for it. And now I see something that, yeah, I likely need to get to be able uh, or to ensure that I have fun when I'm on that trip. The thing I love about partnerships the most is the true like one plus one equals five sort of things. Um, those relationships like, you know, the bark box, things like that. I, uh, I just think it's so innately a marketing problem you know, it's just, you know, how do we, how do we try to find tangential groups of people that want to achieve the same future that we believe? Um, how do we find people that have built in uh, audiences that, you know, have our customers? I think now more than ever, we have, you know, communities built around these sort of things that we just don't really take enough advantage of, you know, you think about somebody's email list, for example, how tough it is to get engagement. And if your team is really good, like I think if it's just like an industry leading brand, like Yeti, for example, um, you know, Yeti's not a media company, but they are a publisher, you know, they create a lot of content, they create a lot of things. And there's so many ways to leverage brands that people love like how do you go about approaching those types of things like for you know for the marketers that's sitting there like i would love to work with yeti or i would love to work with you know you know name it name a company du jour um like a a brand that hey we could add value to their ecosystem and vice versa like how do, how should people think about setting those things up sure and uh, you call out a great point uh, marketing is in an authenticity crisis. And if you think about most consumers, part of that problem comes from the fact that we've been inundated with thousands of branding messages on a daily basis for years. And so it's really hard for any given consumer to be able to trust what that marketing message is saying. But 
the, the thing that you mentioned and so astutely called out, partnerships don't have that same problem. You know, they do have trust from the consumer. And when they deliver a message, um, it's much better received from the consumer and they're more likely to act upon it. So the way that, um, you know, we talk about like identifying the different types of partners that you want to work with, you have to employ a strategy that is not a one size fits all. So uh, a type of partner that, you know, is doing really well is a macro or sorry, a micro influencer, micro influencers. They have the trust of the consumer because, you know, they're out there with real messages that they're delivering. But to be able to have meaningful volume and have it be an accretive, valuable channel for um, an advertiser, they do need to make sure that they're thinking about scale and lots of different partners. So in that scenario, you know, we recommend that you set up more of an automated drip recruiting campaign where the systems and the machines are doing the work for you so that they're taking and guiding these partners from a potential partner or a prospect all the way through the system so that they're up and running and productive and driving value for your organization. But that type of strategy doesn't work for your strategic partners. For your strategic partners, what you need to employ is actually much more of a business development or sales type tactics where you're identifying you know, a list of strategic partners that you wanna work with. You're looking at people within the organization that you think would be the best to actually connect with and reach out to. Ideally, you have a system that can help you and identify like who the best contacts are and already have that information exposed for you so it's not manual. And then you're doing outreach and you're having conversations with them. You're figuring out really the best way that you can add value for one another. And then from there, you go into a typical, you know, contract and onboarding phase so you can get these uh, more strategic partners up and running. You know, there's a lot of parallels to co-marketing, um, partner marketing, um, you know, selling into the same persona, trying to shape the same persona. Um, how do you kind of look at the the partner marketing aspect of this where, you know, it can be really challenging, it can go really great. Um, but, you know, the more partners you had, the more mouths to feed, and it can be potentially, um, you know, disastrous. So any any best practices around around that sort of thing? Yeah. And so this is where, you know, we look at partnerships really, you know, sitting alongside sales and the marketing side of things. And when we look at the, the marketing component, there's a couple of different best practices that we really see that, that helps this, right? So one is really taking it from being a broadcaster to an enabler. And when we talk about that, that, that really means like really thinking about like you can't just be pushing out messaging to them. You want to be building teams more aligned and processes more aligned with an enablement organization, like how you would enable your, your sales um, or your customer success team so that you have a great tool set in there that really efficiently educates the partner on the things that you care about and what you would like them to do so that you can enable them to be out there in the wild and 
promoting you and working with you in a way that you know is going to align with what you want to see from brand and compliance and overall results. Back to the influencer piece. I mean, this is something that truly nobody could have seen coming, right? You know, if you look back 20 years ago, that, you know, individuals are the same size, you know, as media entities, right? Like that, you know, getting mentioned by Kim Kardashian is equivalent to, uh, you know, the, a, a TV spot, right? Like these are, these are things that marketers just didn't really have any, any way to deal with. You know, there was obviously influencer marketing. Most of that was through TV spots and, you know, getting Shaquille O'Neal to, you know, do Icy Hot and things like that. But the the modern influencer-based, micro-influencer, um, this ecosystem is, is extremely complex. You talked a little bit about it earlier. How strategically should people think about influencers? So it's interesting, you know, you definitely brought up one of the more common ones we hear, the Kardashians. And, you know, what the industry has seen is the macro influencers were the ones who drove that initial growth for influencer uh, marketing or influencer partnerships. But at the same time, they've actually created some of the pitfalls that a majority of the organizations um, that we speak with are looking to avoid at this point in time. And a couple of the, the challenges with the macro influencers is the authenticity that I talked about previously in marketing. Now, what everyone understands now is that these large influencers, they're out there, they're getting paid a lot of money, and they're promoting a lot of different brands that don't really align with their own personal brands. So there's a lot of challenges with actually believing whether or not they stand behind that product. So I remember back there was you know, a Gigi Hadid and McDonald's, right? Which those two things don't really go together. Um, so what we started to see is much more of a, a shift towards the focus on these micro and smaller influencers that they have followings from, you know, 10 to maybe a hundred thousand people. And what they're doing is, you know, on a daily basis, those influencers are engaging their audience with authentic and really relatable content. And when we see this done best, the brands and the products that they'll talk about are fully aligned with that engaging and relatable content. And when done right, you know, over 80% of consumers are likely or highly likely to respond to a message about a product or an offering from those uh, micro-influencers. But of course, the challenge becomes scale. It's much easier to just, you know, write Kardashians a big check versus thinking about managing, you know, 200 to 500 different influencers. And that's where the power of technology really needs to come into play if you want to be able to scale um, that type of channel for your, for your organization. Well, yeah. And that's why you see just so much interest at the top, right? That's why Joe Rogan's ads are so expensive. That's why, you know, Tim Ferriss is so expensive. You look at, you know, Barstool with Pardon My Take, why those are so expensive. Like I always jokingly, you know, call them like, uh, 
the butt wiping problems. It's like, hey, everybody has a butt. I can sell them toilet paper. So it's like, I'll just mass, mass effect. Like, you know, um, I can get as many people as possible uh, with this one thing, which is like, you know, for podcasting was historically how it was done was, you know, a lot of CPG stuff. Um, not, not as much nuance, but you do see things like, you know, I think Ferris did a, uh, did a survey of his audience. I forget the exact numbers, but it was like 80% of people prefer the ads. Um, and 90 or no, 90% of people don't care. And 80% of people actually enjoy listening to his ads because they learn about new products and services and stuff that he actually tries himself. Like that is like the, the perfect, you know, um, you know, little microcosm for that. However, there's only one Tim Ferriss, right? And there's only one Bill Simmons and there's only one, you know, Gigi Hadid and all that stuff. And it's not a very scalable model and you're, and you're fighting a losing battle and paying a huge premium to access, you know, those people. Now that might still be worth it, right? Again, like, you know, you've seen businesses built off of, you know, um, being mentioned or books, you know, that got mentioned by in, Oprah's book club that like, you know, made that person rich forever or, or whatever it is. These things obviously have a huge impact, but at the same time, if your product doesn't fit within, um, the model in which you're striving for, you can also, you know, get in trouble with, uh, with doing a, a larger term campaign versus, you know, kind of the, you know, an experiment thing. And then the final piece on that is, you know, people pay for like one tweet or something like that. And like, you know, one tweet a campaign does not make, right? Like that's not really how that works. Um, and, and, you know, the, uh, 13 impressions equal sales sort of a thing is, is pretty violated by that. So I'm just curious, like with, with how these, um, you know, macro influencers can shape these things. It seems like there, you could get to a really nice blend of micro and macro. If you're, if you're leveraging the data in one place, obviously I know your, your product looks at partnerships, um, as a whole in the cloud, but, um, but beyond just that, like you really have to know how these, all of these things intertwine with one another so that you can turn them on and off, uh, as, uh, as you, you know, run experiments. Yeah, and you have to have the data sitting alongside your other marketing campaigns too. So it's, you know, you need to understand how each of them is actually driving value and can, working with paid search or your programmatic buys or whatever the other marketing channels are doing. And a majority, a heavy majority of the influencer teams actually called out that Calculating ROI and understanding of their the value for their programs is a big pain point right now. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, paying for a single tweet or a single post, and then a lot of fluffy vanity metrics about likes and engagement, which that could be fake, um, and not necessarily adding value for your org. So how does partnership benefit the broader ecosystem? Like who is this, who's winning from this, this whole thing? What I love about partnerships is it's really an ecosystem play where everyone can benefit. So even if you think about, you know, these macro influencers that we're talking about, but any of them working directly with brands that align with their own influencer brand means they get a long-term partnership as opposed to some one-off, just this tweet. 
right? And it's because they have compatible brand pairings, they have compatible audience pairings, and they're delivering value for one another. A category of partners that we think about are also the large media houses. And large media houses, these traditional content publishers are getting hurt in a number of different areas. You have you know, changes to how browsers are tracking cookies, impacting retargeting campaigns. Um, you, of course, now have challenges with COVID in the current economic environment. Why would I pay for an impression and not have a direct relationship. It's going through an ad tech ecosystem that's kind of, there's a lot of entities, a little bit of a mess. And so these large premium content partners also can really benefit from working directly with these merchants and advertisers and building content around products and offers that they know their audience wants to consume, much like the scenarios that you were talking about. On top of that, there's service providers that can benefit. You know, this, as we've called out, this isn't like a fully automated channel. There's a lot of automation that can be there. But at the end of the day, you're still going to need people involved in making sure that this um, channel continues to grow and is adding value. And, you know, there's a lot of um, great organizations out there that can provide this level of service for you. And then the final one that benefits is the, the merchants or the advertisers. You know, they get to work directly with referral partners that they know align with their brand. They have more control and they can very easily understand the ROI and the value that they're getting from any of their partners. All right, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more about marketing on the world's number one CRM, that is Salesforce. They've been the sponsor, our partner, from the very beginning of this show. Our true, deep, strategic partner. We love Salesforce. Um, we love Pardot. We love Marketing Cloud. We love them all. They're great. So go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Lightning round questions. Mike, are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Spotify. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? Filet mignon. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? The Sparrow book. It's a combination of sci-fi, love, war, space, everything I love. Hidden talent or passion? I can juggle five balls, three clubs, and three torches. And a bunch of priorities. Um, what, is your, <laughs> <laughs> what is your best advice for a first-time head of partnerships? Don't try to figure it out on your own. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there within the partnership ecosystem that are very passionate about the opportunity that partnerships provide and are so willing to lend a hand, you know, grab a coffee, do a virtual zoom, um, share content. Um, it's a, it's really incredible. The amount of people that are willing to be out there and give. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, what's my daughter's name? What is your daughter's name? <laughs> Viviana. Shout out to Viviana. Love it. Mike, thanks so much for joining. Uh, any final thoughts? No, thanks, Ian. I uh, really appreciate it. It was uh, great speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Talk soon. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. 
Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.